High School Slumber Party is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things Cage Club related, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome, fish, woodpushers, duffers, and a special shout-out to maybe a few of you chess masters out there. This is High School Slumber Party, the podcast where me and some friends look back at our teenage years through the lens of some iconic high school-centric films. I'm Brian Rodriguez, and the party's at my place this evening. But first, school is still in session, and we have some homework to chat about. This was your assignment, and I... Would like to see the results. Let's talk about your mandatory homework first. And of course, that is to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening today. Google Play, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Hit that subscribe button. And if you haven't already, give us a little five-star review. Or how about a rating? I guess that would be a five-star rating. Write us a positive review. You get it. Do one of those things. Do both those things. And perhaps most importantly, tell a friend about all the fun we have here on High School Slumber Party twice a week these days for the price of zero dollars and zero cents. Oh, and of course, just a reminder, you can check out all our old episodes also on cageclub.me, that's cageclub.me, the home of so many other great pop culture podcasts. Check it out. I ask you, I beg you, I assign you to check out cageclub.me, that's cageclub.me. Dot M-E. Some other homework assignments. Wow. Did you listen to our Clueless episode last Friday with Cara Gale O'Regan? Clueless, classic film. One of the most iconic high school films. As if, whatever. Listen, please, because it's an awesome episode. Cara's an awesome guest. Clueless is an awesome film. Check it out at the aforementioned archive at cageclub.me or wherever you're listening to us today. But that was mandatory homework. Clueless. Another piece of mandatory homework and... Yeah, I know this podcast is free, but sometimes the homework costs a little money. And today, it was to watch a VOD movie, Video On Demand. You don't have to put yourself in danger and go to a theater if you don't want to. You can just watch this in the comfort of your home. It was like six or seven bucks on Amazon or wherever you want to order it from. The film is critical thinking. It costs money because it's a new film. It's an exciting film. It's a chess film. And maybe more importantly, it's a film by one of my favorite actors of all time, John Leguizamo. I love John Leguizamo. Everyone who knows me knows I love John Leguizamo. I have an autographed copy of his book, one of his books. He's just amazing. Like, he's always inspired me since I was a kid. What the hell? Come on, guys. You know this. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The bell doesn't dismiss you. I dismiss you. I was waxing poetic about one of my favorites, John Leguizamo. Anyway... Settle down, settle down. We're talking. You'll get out in a second. Just want to let you know how much I love this guy. And he's not only the star of this film, but he directs this film. 
Representation is so important. And growing up as like a young Latin kid in, frankly, an area with not a lot of other Latin kids, it was just amazing to see the very few Latin stars out there. Ligazamo was one of them. And just, you know, I would watch almost everything he was in and love seeing him and love how his career has continued to today. Um, I mean, he's in so much stuff. The other day I was... Uh, Talking Chef with the foodie films man himself, Kyle Reinfried, one of our favorite films, and he's in that as well. He's great in that, but he, again, just look at his catalog, please, please. I, I can't even, you know, begin or end this conversation on Ligazama, how much I love him. So that's going to influence the discussion today, that's for sure. But we're honest about critical thinking, and when I say we, I mean me and my guest John Harden, the great John Harden. He's been on this show many, many times before, a couple times during quarantine, and he's on again. And, you know, usually he's in his capacity as Shakespeare expert or just his capacity as actor. Today, he's here because he's actually a very, very, very good chess master. He calls himself a chess head. He's a chess teacher. So kind of perfect for today's episode, wouldn't you say? Oh my God. And he's got some wonderful things to say, but I was going to say, we don't pull any punches. We're very honest about this movie. We're very open about what we like, what we didn't like. So this isn't going to just be a puff piece or anything like that. But overall, spoiler alert, we give it a really good grade. So definitely listen to the full episode. If you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're being a little bit critical of critical thinking just here or there. Overall, we love this movie, and if you haven't seen it, do your freaking homework. Check it out. Rent it. Representation, important. Seeing so many Latin actors in this, it was just awesome to see them. Love, I love how these stories are being told. So, yeah, no excuses, guys. It was your homework. Rent it regardless. Let's get right into it. So pack your favorite jammies, tell your mother sleeping at Brian's, because we're about to get our party on. And while I'm a New York guy, this is a Miami movie. But when I think Miami, I think some salsa. I think some salsa beats. And I think a little bit of a Willie Colon, Celia Cruz. The song is Come Down to Miami. Class dismissed. like a podcast we were made to talk about a lot of uh, a lot of mutual interests here uh indeed (laughs) but before any of that let's get the introductions out of the way so we can break this brand new movie uh do you remember how to introduce yourself on high school slumber party uh yes i think so so i am john harden and i am 
Zaverian Brothers High School in Westwood, Massachusetts, class of 2005. Did I get it right? Yep, 100% right. Yeah. Bravo. And, that, and that's the podcast, guys. <laughs> <laughs> that's our show. Thank you all for joining us. <laughs> and today we're talking a film, Critical Thinking, just came out. John Leguizamo, director, star, and it's a chess film. And, you know, you've been on this podcast many times before, but I feel like I had to have you on the chess podcast because you are a chess teacher, a chess professional, right? Because Yes. Yeah, yes. You, you I get paid uh... to chess. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been teaching chess since 2012. My USCF rating at its peak was 1989, for anybody who uh, has the slightest idea what that means. I do not. (laughs) I am characterized as a Class A club player, which is basically a way of saying that I am the top of the amateur heap. That's cool. uh, not, Not, you know, anywhere near a professional, not anywhere near professional grade. But I love the game. I'm realizing suddenly that we ought to have started the podcast with a chess set between us. But ooh, uh, that would have been. Uh, I know you weren't thinking moves ahead, John. Oh, <laughs> I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Chess is life. Didn't you learn that from this film? I did. I did learn that. Yes. Uh, so before we get into you know the movie, really, uh, just wanted to ask you know you've highlighted your chess credentials, but first, what's your history with chess? Like, when did you pick up the game and, and all that? Yeah, absolutely. So it's funny because especially in my role as a teacher and frequently I'm, I'm lucky enough to get to teach uh, classes to adults, which are, first of all, I love my kids. I love my students. But uh, adult classes are kind of a chance to operate with your peers that's really exciting and just a different energy. And I routinely get asked this question. So I have sort of a rehearsed answer to it, <laughs> which is that I, I came into chess by degrees. My earliest memory of chess is probably when I'm about six or seven. I mean, I think that I had to have been little just judging by the way the memory is in my brain. And I distinctly remember trying to play a night fork on my dad right out of the opening, not realizing that his queen could simply take and then throwing a hissy fit immediately (laughs) when it didn't work. I am still a sore loser, but I was definitely worse when I was young. So I guess from that, I've always said that I learned chess when I was five because Clearly, I knew how the pieces moved already and had some idea of how to pull off tricks. Um, So something in me kind of understood chess fairly early. I went to a very tiny public elementary school and middle school. I used to haul out the chess set near the end of the school year and try and get people to play me right on these sort of days where not much was happening and your teachers are just playing out their hand. I would beat everybody. But that was kind of it. I mean, that was as far as it went, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm curious because, like, I know a lot of people, including myself, maybe picked up the board and the chess pieces early on and learned a basic understanding of how to play. So I, I guess my next question is, uh, what took you to the next level of continuing to play as much as you play? Because I, I know you very personally. You play a lot of chess. Yes, <laughs> I play entirely too much chess, actually, by my own <laughs> statement. Yeah, so uh, when I went to Zavarian Brothers High School, actually, very fittingly for this podcast, uh, when I went to high school Perfect. is the answer, <laughs> which is they had a chess team. And I distinctly remember coming up to um, the club day, right? The the sort of uh, club, what do they call those things, right? You know, when yeah, all the of tables. the different... Exactly, yeah. <laughs> right? They're advertising to the freshmen to yeah. try and let them know that they exist. Is that just called club day? Yeah, I don't know. It, it certainly should have been called club day if it were called something else. 
yeah, so I went up to that table and I knew that I had an enthusiasm for board games, definitely. Uh, Stratego was a particular obsession of mine. Love for a Stratego. While. Love Stratego. I made a travel Stratego set by individually <laughs> cutting up Velcro strips and taping them to each individual square and then to the bottom of the pieces, which, not very hard, but for a kid of like 10, yeah. is surprisingly enterprising. <laughs> Question on Stratego quickly. Did you play where, because some sets are like, one is the highest number, and some sets... Ah, uh, you know, uh, yeah, one right? is the martial. One is definitely the most powerful, was always the set oh, that gotcha, because I've on. seen sets with the other way. Yes. The other way. I'm just curious. Yes. <laughs> I think that those are simplified for dumb people. Okay. <laughs> I'm ready to be confrontational. <laughs> continue, continue. <laughs> yes, sorry. please, absolutely. Welcome back to our Stratego podcast. <laughs> I'm here with the red pieces, and Brian Rodriguez <laughs> is here with the blue pieces. Watch it in five years. We're going to be doing it for money. Like, it's going to be, like, our thing. Like, who would have known? Yeah. <laughs> How did I make my first first million well how'd they come up with the name stratego (laughs) we should move on (laughs) yes so right so i distinctly remember going up to that table and they had a chess position set up and it turned out later that actually they were playing a game with each other but i had thought that maybe this was a chess puzzle and (laughs) like a goodwill hunting right came up and tried to make a move on it But they did, to their credit, right, they were very friendly and we all had a good laugh and they said, oh, that's a better idea, right? Like sort of, you can, uh, if you can solve the puzzle, you can join the chess club, right? And (laughs) so they sort of had that whole thing. And so I think uh, without making too long a story of it, I joined the club and and, uh, joined the team and within fairly short order was at least able to play on one of the boards. The way that chess teams typically work is... That um, at least in in the league that I was playing in, right, uh, I can't speak to the way it works even outside of Massachusetts, really. We were as part of we were operating as part of a league with other uh, Catholic private schools Mm -hmm. and we would field as many boards as the other team could field. So you had to be able to field five boards, right? Five players. Okay. And it would be the best of five. But some schools would be very happy to agree to play a best of seven because, of course, that means the two more kids get to play. For sure. Right? So, and, and have their game count. So I was, I remember freshman year, I think I was probably playing on board five and then maybe occasionally lower down, right? But I was at least good enough to kind of make it to get to go to matches and travel. And I had a good experience. And we actually won the championship that, uh, that year, although not very much due to my efforts. <laughs> I, I recall very much that a, a guy named Andrew Lappin beat me. Uh, he was sort of, he made me his whipping post for, I think, the four <laughs> years of high school. I was losing games to this guy, Andrew Lappin. I love how you have a high school chess rival. It's oh, awesome. yeah, absolutely. Andrew, yeah. if you're listening, John's still angry. I would love to play. <laughs> I feel like I finally got a win in me, Andrew Lappin. <laughs> how pissed off would you be if he's he listens He's like, oh, yeah, I'd love to play and just schools you again. Oh, that would, well, okay. In some ways it would be upsetting, but in another way, wouldn't it just be, oh, well, I suppose I shouldn't have been surprised. (laughs) Fair, fair, fair. And it is true that uh, you've broken a phone or two because of chess. Is that true? I have broken so many objects because of chess, Brian. I think it would be better if we would move on from this. Uh, I've put holes in walls because of chess. Um, Who says chess is not a contact sport? Exactly. Yeah, the way that I play it. Um, I don't think I've ever hurt another human being, to be absolutely clear. I can't think of... Maybe emotionally. Um, I have been kicked off of a team once because I was too much of a sore loser. Yes. I have reformed. I have reformed. That was a complicated story as well. Um, 
Yeah, that was a whole thing. That was very unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, this is becoming kind of an intervention about my anger problems, actually. Every chess person you've ever played starts walking Right, in exactly. And, just... <laughs> and in the age of COVID especially, which is really, really inconsiderate. So the only other things I'll tell you about that experience, those four years, were number one, I met one of, at this point, my oldest friends, who all through high school was an on-team rival, who is my friend Andrew Hoy. Right, who is now a national master. So um, oh, essentially, wow. yeah, national master, I would call, if you want to give uh, your listeners an analogy, I would say that it's kind of like the first rung on a professional ladder, right? It's all, it's almost like being like a triple A ball player, maybe, or maybe double A might be a better analogy, wow. right? It, it's He's very good, but still not at the level where he's going to be competing internationally. For sure, for sure, but that's still... Quite an accomplishment. Yes, he's come a long way. Yeah, absolutely. We were probably more close to, uh, he was a little bit ahead of me in high school, you know, but it's it's really grown by leaps and bounds. So yeah, so I met Andrew there and, and we were rivals for most of our time through high school, but slowly over time became something closer to friends because by senior year, my senior year, who's a year younger than me, um, we were co-captains of the team. So this became a, a big part of my life. And, you know, every winter we would go and we would compete and uh, I would try and get better. And uh, it's funny because I realized much later in life that uh, the whole time I was living about 20 minutes from a local chess club where I probably could have had lessons and gotten much better <laughs> and a bunch of things. But, you know, we didn't know. And the, and the Internet existed, but... It wasn't the same. Yeah, you didn't like literally look at a map and see everything near your home. Exactly. You couldn't just put literally the word chess into Google and go like, oh, son of a gun, there's a chess set, a chess club in Natick. You know, you so, had to kind of wing it back then. You have to be like chess.com. You know? Exactly. Right. Which now actually hits something, but then didn't. Right. So it was a very different time. Yeah. And then the only other highlight I would say... Um, and then I'll be briefer, is that I remember my senior year after an unbelievably losing season where I lost, I think, almost every game <laughs> playing board two. You know, I had sort of stepped up. Some people had graduated. Andrew was on board one. I was board two. And I got my clock cleaned all year. <laughs> we went to the individual tournament at the end of the year. And somehow I went into some kind of bizarre... What is that? Uh, what's that word that people use? You know when Will Ferrell blacks out in old school yeah, yeah, and he yeah. gives the amazing debate answer. Yeah, That's sort of what happened to me. <laughs> I won every game except, of course, to Andrew Lapman. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> and I managed to take second place. So that the was legend. sort of yeah, Andrew Lapman. Where is he now? I wonder. <laughs> yeah, so I ended up taking second place in the individual tournament, and that was the end of my high school chess career. Then. Since I've taken far, far more than enough time. It was all high school related. It counts. That's true. I moved to New York. I met my first chess teacher who was an old Jewish master named Richard who used to talk like this and was the most fascinating individual. <laughs> um, remind me later, Richard taught me about screwing it in in chess, which is an incredibly important thing that chess players understand and features in our film tonight yeah and it's just kind of grown from there of course once i started teaching got my first job doing that it became a sort of feedback loop where i learned more to teach which then taught me more right and um increased my enthusiasm so uh i currently run we'll talk about this more i suppose at the end but i'm currently running a little online chess community 
um, especially in light of this COVID disaster, to get more people involved in the game. It is called Acceptable Chess, with the idea that that is the level of chess we are all learning to play. <laughs> and uh, we're active on Twitch and uh, YouTube and um, you know streaming content all the time. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk about that a little bit later because John has some creative and interesting ideas related to the film here today. Again, in terms of subject matter of a film, like you are the perfect guest for me. One, I know you. Two, you're the best chess player I know personally. And three, you know, you competed in high school. Now, were you an underprivileged child in Miami? No, but <laughs> well, it's time I finally reveal my true form. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I didn't go through anything that these kids went through. That's absolutely true. Um, and to be clear, I didn't either. But my connection to this movie is not through chess, but. Always growing up, I was a John Leguizamo, like, super fan. Love him. He's getting a little bit of a revival now, which is nice. Not that he, like, ever went away, but he never was considered, like, an A-lister or anything like that. I mean, it felt to me like around the time of the past that he was very well known. Yes, yes, absolutely. And it feels like a lot of the projects he's chosen in his later years have been more like, I'm going to go do a Broadway show, which is obviously a smaller audience than a major film. But he loves that kind of stuff. Like, he's been doing plays for a while, and, you know, his... Most recent play, Latin History for Morons, did uh, pretty well. I saw it live, and he's just like such a nice guy. Afterwards, he's like, oh, if you buy a book, you know, I'll sign an autograph. And he was one of these people, like, you know, you get that sometimes, but bought a book, and he would talk to every single person who there, like, for as long as he wanted to. He wasn't shooing anyone away, to the point where I was, like, towards the back of the line. It was just him. There was no handlers, not even, like, anyone else. Literally just him at the front on a table, and you could say whatever you want to him, and he would talk to you and smile and, you know, oh, what do you think of the play? That's awesome, man. What do you, know, what do you have to do? What do you do? That's great, you know? And a guy who gives you that feeling, always love that. Um, Absolutely. Queens guy, grew up in the same neighborhoods as, like, my family in Queens, Latin guy. You know I love Queens. I'm, we're in Queens right now. Absolutely, you know? Um, and he, he's a real, if you, like, watch his plays and read his story, teachers mattered so much to him growing up. You know, he was a he was a kid who didn't think he was going to be an actor or anything like that. One of his teachers, you know, I'm paraphrasing. I'm telling his story now, but you know what I mean. One mm-hmm. of his teachers was like, dude, you could be an actor. Like, really supported him, really inspired him to write and to act. And that's how, you know, that's his mindset today. And look, maybe some of the flaws of this movie are because of that for you and me, like the jaded set. But to me... This is like a teacher's movie. It reminded me of something a teacher would show in school. And I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way. He's a director. I think he's a first-time director of a film. I know he's obviously directed his plays and stuff, or maybe, you know, he's had control over things before. But if this isn't his first directorial effort, he's not more known for that. But you could tell that, like, he's telling the story he wanted to tell, and and I think we'll both agree that it's very heavy-handed at times, but I think intentionally. I don't think... As an artist, he was up there thinking, I want to make the greatest art piece in the history of the world. I think he's like, I want to do this movie like I'm teaching. Latin History for Morons, if you see the play, it's a lesson. That's how it's done. He's the teacher the entire time, and he's teaching a lesson. So I got a lot of Latin History for Morons in this as well. Mm. So that's kind of like my background with him. Also, hardcore Mets fan, suffers like me. You know, so he's a guy I just (laughs) really, really like. (laughs) Now, John, before we get into it, every week I read, like, back of the DVD, back of VHS, whatever they have. Right. This is still streaming, so this is what, like, the streaming bio is. Oh, is this available on a streaming thing? 
Oh, like, not for free. You have to. Oh, rent okay. It. Yeah. I was about to say I definitely paid money for it. <laughs> no, but it's like I think it's like seven bucks. Some movies, yeah. new movies, now are like twelve and stuff. Yeah, no, it wasn't too bad at all. Yeah. So, Continue. Here goes. Based on a true story from 1998, five Latin and black teenagers from the toughest underserved ghetto in Miami fight their way into the national chess championship under the guidance of their unconventional but inspirational teacher. Right off the bat, though, I. I didn't really look into this kid, but I think one of the kids is white, right? At least he appears yes. to be. Yeah, okay. Like, uh, but see me, you know? <laughs> right. I was about to say, I mean, uh, you know, why am I in the position of doing this? This is insane. <laughs> but I'm just going to continue now because I've opened my mouth. But as you well know, many people uh, of, shall we say, Latinx heritage, is that the appropriate way? See, I'm already making a fool of myself, but are absolutely what you'd call white passing. Absolutely white. You know, Latin is just... You know, just where kind of their family's from. It's not like a race, you know. You could, you could be black, white, whatever. I just didn't know if this guy was like... I don't know if the kid was a white Latin person or just a a white kid. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Because if it is, I think like the explanation kind of underserves it. This team, overall, whatever, this is a super diverse team. I love it. Um, so I am curious. I'll, I'll probably look it up. <laughs> well, if it, I, I have just looked it up, and it seems like his name is is Gilberto Luna. So I'm going to go ahead and say <laughs> that that guy is Hispanic. Okay, great, great. Then representation all around. Okay, because I, I did want to check that because I was like, oh. but it's good. It's, it's good that I even asked that question, you know, because I wasn't sure in the movie, and that's totally fine. The movie is not too many reviews yet, but it is getting good reviews, and we'll talk about that later. But I think it is important that we discuss it in context of the vision here, which I believe he had. Look, I haven't talked to him about it, obviously, personally, because, you know, let's be honest, it is not. Yeah, it's I, I called it. I think I called it heavy handed to you via text. I think it's a bit ham fisted. There's just a little bit of because when you see that fire go out, <laughs> it never comes back. It's very difficult to hear and to be honest with you some of it lies in the performances that i think that there's a way that to shoot and deliver that line that makes it something that a person might say in a more regular situation right because once that fire goes out it never comes back you know and if you deliver the line like it isn't the end of the world it doesn't hit your audience quite as much as this is a movie full of feelings <laughs> and that was i think what i had a problem with i think some of it is not just the script but also in the delivery and honestly like again i'm waxing poetic about him because i love him but you know we can't forget that he is not a seasoned film director hmm. um you know he's mostly known for his acting um who knows how he is on set yeah he he may have had a vision for certain scenes that just isn't to my taste which is perfectly fine and he's so connected to the story too you could tell that you know it, it exactly exactly how you put it vision and just a different vision but it's certainly again if you want to say this movie's preachy it definitely is preachy Absolutely. but it's not preaching bad things at least no. you know it, like i said it reminded me of something i would see in school Aside from the language, which is... And, yeah. and the fact that a character is murdered within the first <laughs> ten minutes. Point blank. I'm not going to laugh about it. I was like, wait, did that just I happen? I found it incredibly traumatic, to be honest. I did not expect it at all. I assumed this was a character who was going to come into the film. It really uh, shocked me and upset me. Yeah, because they set it up that way. So I think there is this balance of preachiness with trying to show realness as well. And I don't think, I don't think the realness is like, oh, let's be honest exactly what happened and i'm not saying they're no, they weren't i think i went by realness i mean more like oh, heavy-handed is kind of a good way you, that mm. you put it too because that's real but in a heavy-handed way yes you know? 
like maybe that kid did die. Maybe that's one hundred percent true. But literally, the guy, the scene you're talking about, the guy just comes up. You know, it was set up like a lot of high school movies. New kid in town comes in. You almost think he's gonna be uh, the Marcel character. Any later, moment right? now, he's gonna start dating Eliza Dushku, <laughs> and we're gonna be off to the races. And this was not the case. Nope, literally just shot. Yeah, you know, so it was super jarring. So it, it does strike a weird tone with the rest of the stuff. Yes. I think another criticism you might make of the film would be, and and this goes towards perhaps the the newness, and here's where we look it up and find out Legozama's directed nine films and aren't, aren't we morons, but, you know, the, the story is not perhaps perfectly closed. I mean, Ito's final confrontation with the drug dealer, for example, and I know I'm narratively jumping all over, That's okay. but it does feel a little strange that he really beats the hell out of this guy and then escapes but somehow we're never you know it seems like uh, is that guy gunning for him now it feels kind of strange that certainly somebody's got sort of a death vendetta against him and we never really he just kind of makes it out right we never see him again actually in the film the film just kind of ends i think unless i'm misremembering i'm super curious if that element of it was real or just added by Hollywood to show, see, things are dangerous in this neighborhood. I don't know, but it seems like something they would add. Yes. Have you ever seen uh, that HBO miniseries with Oscar Isaac, Show Me a Hero? I have not. Okay, so in that miniseries, for me, this is my opinion, mm. the main like storyline is great, and I love it, and I love his performance. I love him as an actor. Mm. But they have, it's Paul Haggis, so... You know, do with that as you will, but think like Crash and things like that. Right. Um, there are a lot of like side storylines to really show you. You see, these people are poor in the projects, or you see, this immigrant family struggling. Mm. Some of them were great, and some of them didn't hit the mark. But you get to a point in a miniseries where you're like, I don't want to see this part anymore. I get it. You told me that, like, I know it's going to happen to these people. It's very predictable. No, I'm not saying this movie had it. Yes, and I, I will say actually that I, I had no problem with them going to that dark place, and I thought it was interesting to watch the movie that way. That you know they kept as they were winning these tournaments, I started to realize how much more the movie was about than mm. just a sort of traditional sports film, which is kind of <laughs> more totally centered on progress towards this one goal and everything being seen as an obstacle but it was also about their lives and about these serious difficulties and some problems that aren't going to be solved immediately um, which i thought was really interesting you know something uh else that that couldn't i couldn't help having in my mind is because i'm watching it actually for the first time and of course uh this includes michael k williams is the wire uh, (laughs) which is as good as they say yes Uh, i'm really enjoying it and I'm through, you know, uh, just all of the first season. I'm into the second season on the docks now. They deal with, I think, some of these, some of this showing real people in real interesting, sometimes very dark situations. That's a really good point. But without feeling patronizing, which I, to be honest with you, feel sometimes this movie comes a little bit across. A little too, a little too patronizing. Yeah, I mean, we're comparing it to The Wire, but but I 100% agree with you. That's a good way to do it. Can we just talk about The Wire for the rest of the I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Has there ever been a podcast on The Wire? <laughs> Two guys are talking about The Wire. Um, I'm sure there has. Of course. Um, yes. No, I, I did enjoy this film. I'm glad that I watched it. I probably wouldn't have gotten around to it for quite a while, so this is a wonderful excuse. No, I did really much, uh, very much on the whole, 
enjoy it. I thought the performances were very good. I was very glad that the sort of principal character, maybe an assistant principal mm-hmm. um, character, ended up with some depth, and we saw that she really cared about the kids. It was a little difficult to see, you know, how much she was in the role of sort of unfeeling white woman. Yes, yes. But, um, but it did, that did come around, and, yeah. and it didn't come around in a way that wasn't genuine or didn't feel genuine. She wasn't just suddenly like, all right, go get him. You know, she was like, like still had that fuck you mindset, but now exactly. in their favor. turned it in their favor. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was a nice thing to see. I always enjoy when characters are given depth and they're, the villains are have some kind of understanding to them. I mean, we, we don't get that from the drug dealer character, but on the other hand, I do understand too that there are some people in the world who are just really rather nasty. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you mentioned some people in the cast, and I just want to bring up, you know, cast and crew quickly before Absolutely. we just dive into sure. some favorite scenes and some yeah. chess stuff, too. Uh, so the, it, this is written by a guy named uh, Ditto Montiel. You've probably never heard of him. Maybe, I don't mean that in like a hipster way, uh, but he's a, he's a writer. I was into him before it was cool. <laughs> Continue. He's a writer, and he's has directed some movies as well. But he's a big Queens guy, too, so I'm not shocked that these two are collaborating. Uh, the a movie I saw of his in college is called uh, A Guide to Recognizing Your Saints. Oh, I have heard of this film, but not seen it. It's really good. Like, I mean, at least from what I remember, it takes place in Astoria, hmm. your neighborhood. Indeed. Um, I, I love it. It's so. a period period piece, though. Uh, Robert Downey Jr., Shia LaBeouf. Uh, who else? Oh, Channing Tatum, an early Channing Tatum role. Rosario Dawson. And for me, it was one of these first films that I saw. Definitely not the first ever, but you know, you're in college, you're an impressionable person. One of the first films I saw that was like. Kind of an independent film, but also something in New York in streets that I knew, not from growing up, but like from my parents and stuff like that. Sure, sure. So I've always liked this guy. I mean, he I haven't seen his later movies like Empire State and Boulevard. Like, I don't really know these, but the first one I really liked. So I wasn't shocked that he was the collaborator here with Ligazamo. Again, another Queens guy. When another... you said Empire State, I immediately thought of Empire Records. <laughs> yeah, he did Empire Records. And then I realized my mistake. <laughs> but as far as the cast, you mentioned it. Michael K. Williams is like the other you know, known commodity here. And he's obviously awesome in whatever he does. And he just, you know, he played the, uh, the father of one of the kids here. He does an incredible job with a very thinly yeah. written part. Yeah. As uh, usual. <laughs> I was gonna, I was almost surprised he took this part because it just, we see this character a lot in movies, but... Wouldn't shock me to find out he's a chess enthusiast. I love that, though. Um, just for his character and his son. I think there's this idea, and you probably could speak to this more than me, that like chess is very much an elitist game. Hmm. And I know this movie is like really big to tell you it's not. But if for me, if it would have just been about the kids learning chess in school, that's one thing. But the fact that this dad now was he a chess master? No. But the fact that chess was like important to him and something he played with his son, I thought it was super cool because that's how a lot of us learn these games. And even though his he wasn't using chess the right way to teach the right things it was cool to see that if that makes sense absolutely yeah i did i did appreciate that i did like seeing um the hustler tables out in miami Mm -hmm. that they went to and just looking at chess culture from a few i mean i could have seen more of that i I would love to see more of that because like i'm a guy i didn't grow up around again i played chess briefly and stuff and just for fun with my friends but for me growing up the game that the family played at barbecues was dominoes and they make yes. a lot of references to Domino's here. And I know Domino's does not have the chess pedigree, if you will. It doesn't have the, quite the same hold on the national consciousness. But I have, I will say, I've watched the men in who hustle in Union Square, not in Washington mm-hmm. Square Park. But there are a lot um, of 
guys who hang out in Union Square. And actually, the Union Square players, a lot of time, are the better players these days. Play dominoes when it's especially late at night, and I definitely understand the appeal. Yeah, well, I was going to say, it's also not like... I've seen just, you know, me playing dominoes, and then I've seen high-level domino players, just like chess, who I would never be able to compete with. They and slap those things down. Fast, and you know... It's, it is a physical sport. It's insane. It's, it's insane. And I love equating that to chess in this. Um, that was pretty cool. So yeah, I just wanted to bring up the Michael K. Williams character. Most yeah. of the kids, though, they're not known, you know, actors here, and I love that. You know, I don't need to see famous kids from disney in this movie you know no absolutely (laughs) Um, no actually i have a bit of trivia that i don't know if i've even talked to you about yet which is that my friend will adams was up for this film oh oh so i've I've known that this existed since around the time that it was greenlit just because he called me effervescent with excitement (laughs) saying you're never gonna believe what i have to tell you about man i've been thinking about you all day ever since i got this audition because anyone who knows me for any length of time soon discovers that i am a chess head and uh yeah so he ended up not taking it or or maybe he maybe he didn't get offered it but there was there were some complications because he was actually at school still at brown pursuing his mfa so i think um wonder what role he was up for I, based on the resemblance, I have to assume that it was Ito, because he and Ito have very definite resemblances. Really? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm not sure. I mean, that's, maybe that's me just judging by appearances. You know, there's no, there's no definite reason why that should be the case. Um, It's just what came into my head thinking, whoa, this guy looks a lot like Will. (laughs) This must be him. Um, But who can say? Could have nothing to do with it. I mean, as a, like, Dominican person, it was rare growing up to see when I say people of color, it sounds weird, but you know, I mean that like Latin people in films. Hmm. Um, that's why I said I connected to John Leguizamo. But two of the guys are Dominican American actors. Uh, so the one who plays Ito is, and he's he's been in a bunch of stuff. Those are the two who have been in like a couple things. So uh, Jorge Ledenborg is his name. I, like again, oh. I wasn't too familiar with his name, but I recognize his face. That's the one who played Ito, hmm. and he's been in like the Spider-Man films, but main, oh. mainly like people you wouldn't even remember if we're talking right, about it right, now. Right. Uh, but so he, small parts, but big films. Small parts of big films. He was in uh, that Bumblebee movie, like the Transformers one. Right. So he's he's on Hollywood's radar. We'll put it that way. It's not yeah. like they just took kids, you know, from a high school and right. casted them. And the other one, uh, Angel Bismarck Curiel, he's a Dominican guy, twenty four. I was gonna say kid, but like you know, twenty four. Right. But playing as high schooler, and he played uh, one of the other kids, and he's been in a little bit of stuff too. He was in um, Monsters and Men and Pose. I don't know if you're familiar with that FX series, but mm. it's like a like a I've heard of it. Of series, yeah. yeah, I haven't watched it. But he's much. actually a kid from Miami. Mm. So like, even though he's somewhat of an established actor, he's not. He's probably aware of the situation here. So for me, I think the kids were pretty well casted. I don't know how. How do you feel about? Uh, just the casting of these kids. I thought they all did an excellent job. I'll just say that. I mean, I really did. I thought the performances were very good. I didn't. I didn't worry about the performances of any of the actors in the film. Um, occasionally, some of the script moments, right? I thought were treated in a certain way. But no, I thought they were charismatic. I thought they were funny. I thought one of the things that was really nice to see was I saw genuine relationships. I mean, right? it felt to me like they became real friends over the filming of this film, at least, or at least performed it really well, and that that was nice to see. It really got the sense of the team. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Gil Luna, you mentioned him before, but he was played by an actor named Will Hotchman. Hmm. So who knows? Who right. knows the background there? I'd have to do right. a little bit more research Absolutely. on the actual team. Yeah. 
And I, I do want to get into this briefly with you, like the team and, and the history. And so I mentioned who played Ito, Angel Bismarck Carell. He played the kid Rodale Medina. Yes. So Will Hotchman played Gil Luna, who was the white kid. Uh, right. Corwin Tuggles, he played Cedric Roundtree. Right. I thought he was really good. Yeah. And Jeffrey Batista played... Cedric, isn't it? Isn't it Cedric? It's Cedric. Interesting. S-E-D-R-I-C-K. Oh, okay. Maybe Cedric. I've already forgotten. Okay. <laughs> and then uh, Jeffrey Batista played Marcel Martinez. Right. So i just like to mention them because I think they did a pretty awesome job. Agreed. Um, and like you said, there was some genuine like feelings between them. It seemed like they were having fun on set. So for every like maybe like heavy-handed teaching moment... I wasn't so bothered by it by seeing the relationship between these guys and seeing them genuinely like react to it and stuff. But let's talk, you know, let's talk a little bit more about this movie and the history of this. Just curious, is this like a famous story? Do people know about this? Because who knows about like high school chess champions? Yeah, I can't. To be honest with you, I, it's difficult for me to say. I mean, for me, I don't feel like much of an authority. No, um, but again, like who knows football high school champions? No, football is a popular sport. Right? I, I would just say that the reason that I don't uh, that I don't really understand it so well is because uh, 1998, I, I wasn't paying attention. Of course, of course. You know that this this wasn't the time at which I had any knowledge of what was going on in the world of competitive chess. And if you grew up in New York City. Most people who grew up in New York City have a lot more experience with chess as a real formal undertaking than I ever did because the schools, the scholastic scene of chess in New York is very strong. Mm. There are a lot of programs and actually most kids start to really dribble away and, and do other things after elementary school. But elementary school is vibrant with lots of participation at a lot of schools, including public schools. So it's a very different thing. There's a whole going world that people who go to a school with maybe 49 kids in a town in Massachusetts just have no idea about. So it, gotcha, it, gotcha. it's just hard for me to say. I'm sure it was a big story for some people at the time. I mean, when you consider the expectations of a team like that, obviously ill-founded, but they existed, mm-hmm. right? And then to go, they not only won in 1998, they won, uh, at least by the article I could find before we, shortly before we started recording, they won five times in a row. Wow. Right. So that, that 1998 time was just the first. So they were absolutely a notable program, and I'm sure it was a famous story to people participating in the chess scene. But by the time I'm really getting mm-hmm. into chess okay. beyond my individual league, it's 2006. That's valid. And, uh, but we're also not talking about here, like, this was Michael Jordan's high school. Like, did any, any of these people ever become... Like, no. Superstars, yeah. you know? No, none of them did. No, um, none of none of these players are, to any of my knowledge. I, I'm not even sure. I mean, 2300, which we are told that, that Marcel is, is an incredibly very, you know, very good rating and is good enough to be what we would call a FIDE master, which is even a step above the aforementioned national master. Um, at some point, I'll lay all these titles out, <laughs> I guess. People often ask me to do that, but I think we'll, we'll spare people for this moment. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, so he's very strong already, but none of them ever became, you know, world top 10 or something gotcha. like this. This is uh, this would be incredibly rare. Gotcha. No, I mean, I'm just curious about the story. And that's, I mean, it's super cool anyway. It doesn't take yeah. away, like, I don't need to like, oh, and this guy became super famous. And that yeah. man's name was George Washington. <laughs> yeah. And he founded the country somehow. I was just curious because it is a fascinating story. I even imagine with the media today that if something like this happened today, I mean, I don't know. But like obviously things are different, but yeah. it you know maybe it takes off a little bit more. But 
I think it would have. When you consider that this movie took 20 years to get made. Good point, yeah. Yeah, there's a reason it's getting made now, because these kinds of stories are stories... Now, granted, it was also helped a great deal that Leguizamo attached himself to the film, but people wanted to see this now. I think people are more ready to hear stories about Absolutely. people of color. Absolutely, and you know, I really like enjoyed seeing this story because I was glad that we could see stories like this. And also, you know, it makes me happy as a Latin person to have a guy like John Leguizamo using his fame. Uh, look, I know it's not like he's—he's he's not like he's uh, not taking a profit on this and donating right. it all to the inner cities. Right. I'm not saying that, but who knows? You know, he has a choice in—you know—not nah, I mean, look. He's not—he doesn't have an ultimate choice. He can't go direct a James Cameron film with that kind of budget. No, but he certainly has he... a choice to direct films like this, and he's choosing this subject matter. Absolutely. I have to back up. Maybe it's just a bo- thing that bothers only me. But when I say people are ready, I think that clearly I meant white people are ready to hear stories. Because I'm pretty sure that people of color have wanted to see more stories about themselves for quite a long time. And I felt silly having said that. <laughs> fair, fair. Well, that's noted and corrected. And I think you're right, though. I, I definitely knew what you meant. Right. But yes. And you also... Hollywood too like they're not like eh can we change some of the characters around and change the story so it's like this exactly which I'm sure they would have done had they tried to make the story in 1999 yep probably yeah Yeah. absolutely there's that famous movie oh god it stars Kevin Spacey and like uh, it's about poker like or or no they rob the they like rob the casino blind oh like they're uh, what do you call it bringing down the house is it about the MIT students who robbed the casino? Yes, yes, and yes. Kevin yes, Spacey's that it's bringing down the house. It is okay. And Excuse me. The book is called Bringing Down the House. Maybe the movie is uh, actually called something else because there was already. Uh... Oh yeah, isn't that? <laughs> yeah. Hang on. <laughs> it was adapted into the movies Twenty One and The Last Casino, and I'm pretty sure that Twenty One is the one that has. Yes. Yes, 21. We're thinking of 21. 21, yes, that's the film. And yes. they changed a lot of the cast from Asian Americans to just white people because it was sexier and more fun. Like, that could have, that could have happened in this story. We don't know, you know. What's the matter with <laughs> Anyway, let's continue. Yeah, no, so, so that's the point. So in regards to scenes and stuff, or even the chess in this film, yeah. what do you want to talk about? What, what interests you? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, so this is interesting. I recognized that pretty early on in watching it that I was very enthusiastic about talking about some of the little details, but that I also was limited by the ability to communicate only verbally um, to people who might be interested. So we'll see, right? You and I had discussed some ideas that maybe we'll throw in at the end of this about how we could accomplish that better. So I'll just, I'll try and just talk a little bit more generally. So one of the things that I notice about this movie that's fairly typical for chess films to be honest is that in the vast majority of cases the positions that they represent in which they attempt to show a whole game are exactly how hollywood treats everything which is that they are oversimplified and shortened so Mm. as an example right the games we see i think two games between michael k williams the father character and you said cedric let me get yeah, this right. Yeah, Cedric. Right? And said, and both games are completely resolved by opening traps. So these positions, while I would believe that either character could fall into them, are good examples of sort of simplifying the real science and beauty of chess 
into um, a memorized preparation designed to trick your opponent. So um, in the first one, his father lures Cedric into a trap where uh, Black loses his queen right out of the opening. And the other one actually is a very famous trap called the Caustic that his father falls into where Black is able to spring a trap and gets a very quickly, completely winning attack against White if White is not careful. And that was one of the things that I really wanted to highlight just in talking about this movie is... It's completely all right. I I don't like offering this criticism with too much relish because film is a medium and it requires shortening and simplifying. And that's what it does is it makes a complex message a little bit simpler in order to disseminate it to a larger audience, which is a good thing. People learn about things and find out about the existence of communities and people and lifestyles that they otherwise might know nothing about right? without the simplification of film. So it's not that we have to reject it wholesale, but it should be acknowledged that the struggle that these kids go through in order to win these games is much better reflected in something like the final effort with Marcel against this Acopian character, right? Because it's a long battle, and very often the games are resolved over hours of fighting and pacing and uh, feeling out for opportunities and sometimes making a move just to pass turns so that you can sort of see mm-hmm. what your opponent does, right? And this whole idea of the strategic struggle and of endurance, which people do not think about when it comes to chess, but is absolutely an enormous part of the game, right? These games sometimes can last as long as five hours. People need to stay alert and awake for the little traps that are operating in every position. And most of the games that we see are kind of like, well, I memorized a thing and you're inexperienced and fell into it, which becomes especially absurd when you have scenes like, uh, as happens at a number, when we see a number of end games where one character has two rooks against the other character's king, and for some reason we watch them pace it out with tension. This is an end game that would be completely over. I mean... If both players are actually serious tournament players, one of them would have resigned by now. You understand? It's like, it's that one-sided. The idea that you would sit there and make the other guy plod through to Mm -hmm. mate you would only happen if you were either especially competitive and bitter, which I will admit, children do not resign (laughs) readily. They very often make you play So that part's accurate? Yes. Children never resign. (laughs) And very often this is because their coaches tell them not to. Because uh, if you resign too early, I mean, I, I often tell my kids not to resign because the other player may make a massive mistake, which makes sense when you're playing other kids. But the higher up you go the rating ladder, and we're meant to understand that these kids are fairly Oh, strong. yeah, they win a national championship. Exactly. Yeah. They must be pretty good. At that level, people are tending now to resign more often. They're not expecting you to suddenly give away both rooks, <laughs> you know, and get a draw. So that was, these are some of the things that I noticed, right? A sort of simplification in terms of playing for tricks, which is not really what's happening at a higher level of chess, right? It's that at least the tricks that you're pulling off are more sophisticated. And also the idea that, that people would still be playing on in some of these positions that are, are kind of absurdly over, right? Gotcha, gotcha. I mean, look, like you said. It's sports movies. It's usually what they do. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right? Any fan of football will tell you the same thing about the longest yard. or Yeah, know, it's rare that you see, like, oh, you know, you're like, take a knee on this play. And, you know, it's just like, that's what it is. Yeah. Or, like, you know. So, I mean, that's something I definitely wanted to ask you about because I was curious. Uh, we do get a lot of chess terms in here that 
I've never heard of, and again, I don't expect full lessons on these. And if you oh want, no, on the contrary, I'll be more than happy to tell you. <laughs> but you know, if, again, if you want to save that for another time, I totally right. get it. But you know, some of them like Scandinavian defense. Great. Like, these were real things. I'm asking. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. So the Scandinavian defense actually is also known as the center counter defense. And the reason it's called that is because I actually don't know the origins of the name Scandinavian. Perhaps I'm a bit unprepared for the podcast. But the, <laughs> that, that's fine. I think the, people. <laughs> the reason it's called the center counter is because uh, White plays the king's pawn forward two spaces. And then instead of matching him with his own king's pawn, which you see through most of the games that we see in the in the movie, right? Almost every game we see in the movie is played E4, E5, um, which is interesting and and probably not you know representative i mean there are a lot of other openings under the sun but uh this would be e4 d5 where black instead responds with the queen's pawn and creates immediate pawn tension um so that's why center counter (laughs) anyway what's the next one yeah so i'm just fascinated because like i'm watching and i'm like oh look at the pieces on the board and I know you're analyzing. I, mean. <laughs> I was, yeah. I, well, when we get to, I know you're going to ask about this word, so I'll, I'm waiting we'll, with bated We'll get breath. there, we'll get there. Uh, I, f- I forgot Sicilian defense, and I know that's something you've even taught in your lectures, so Absolutely, yeah, a very thing. popular opening, yeah. I won't get into a verbal description <laughs> on that one, but yes. Is anyone ever called a fish, or is that something from this movie? Oh, fish is absolutely a thing. Okay. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, yeah, fish, uh, other ones that I'm extremely fond of that indicate that you are a bad player, um, this one comes from Yiddish, Patzer. <laughs> like very, very important. Like okay, one, features yeah. heavily in the movie uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer. You hear a lot more of that gotcha. one because it's set in New York, of yeah. course. Right, so that's Patzer. Um, other ones I really like, Wood Pusher. <laughs> yep, that's like a that really one, good yeah. one. And uh, I'm trying to think. There was one more I thought. Uh, Duffer. Duffer is nice, another one nice. that I've heard. These all mean bad chess player. <laughs> Woodpusher is probably the best because it's so literal. I'm definitely a woodpusher. I'm definitely a fish. So just FYI. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so we'll get to that weird term in a second. But how about a... I might be saying this wrong, but the Philindor or Philandor defense? Uh, Philidor. Philidor. Yeah, so yes. there are a lot of... The there are a couple of famous chess players mentioned. Philidor is, uh, is a real French master and did write that pawns are the soul of chess and is very important to the development of chess theory. Um, actually, the other famous chess player that I'd love to talk even more about is Paul Morphy. Yes, that was the next thing. Paul Morphy and yes. the opera game. Exactly. So this, so game this is was, a real thing. Yes, and it was okay. played in, I think, 1858 in the Paris Opera House. He did play it against the Duke of Brunswick and a man named Count Isouard. That's amazing. Which is the most incredible name. That's amazing. Morphy is known as the pride and sorrow of chess uh, because he took the world by absolute storm and only played for three years. So he, he was a Louisiana New Orleans lawyer whose family came, uh, had some significant money. And his playing of chess was always considered a little bit, a little bit, little bit déclassé, mm. right? Um, sort of him stepping down. So he really only began playing in a serious way because he had time to kill between graduating from law school and reaching the age legally allowed to practice law in Louisiana. <laughs> That's crazy. Right. So he goes to the American Chess Congress in 1857 in New York and wins the damn thing. And then gets invited to Europe to play all the strongest players there by, I think the man's name is Howard Staunton, um, whose name would be familiar to chess enthusiasts because most modern chess sets are based on what is called the Staunton design. So he goes over there, beats everyone in Europe as well, um, retires back to New York, uh, excuse me, returns to the States, right, retires back to New Orleans, announces that he will play anyone in the world who wants to at the odds of a move and a pawn. So in other words, he would take black 
and be down upon, and he will play anybody in the world. And when inevitably no one really accepted his challenge, because of course there is an inherent problem in accepting such a challenge, which is if you win, you've only beaten Morphe at odds of pawn and a move. And if you fair, lose, fair. how embarrassing for you. He retired and lived out the rest of his life as honestly a relatively mediocre lawyer <laughs> that people kept bothering to talk about chess. Wow. Should have just played the chess. Should have continued it. Just an endlessly fascinating individual, though, Morphe. Um, yeah, definitely well, look into that some more. Yeah, one of two Americans before, maybe nowadays, we have some modern players who are very strong. Hikaru Nakamura and Fabiano Caruana are the two living, outstanding chess players. They're both in the world top ten. But before them, honestly, it was Bobby Fischer and Paul Morphy, and that was about it. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. It's like chess and soccer, right? We can't get good at no. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> well, they were they were the only ones to ever reach world championship level. I should put it that way, right? It's not that we had no good players. Fair, fair. Continue. Soviet school, real thing. Yes, one of the major things that defines the 1972 championship between Bobby Fischer and Boris Spassky. This is the one world championship of chess that most Americans have some idea about. Yeah, right. Was this idea? Very, very American of Bobby Fischer, the lone intellect. Of course, this wasn't true, right? Bobby had a lot of support and a lot of teachers, and he played, right? He belonged to the Manhattan Chess Club, which no longer exists, and he played also at the Marshall Chess Club, which is still functioning in New York today, against Boris Spassky, product of the Soviet machine. So the Soviet school, which um, obviously doesn't exist in the same form today, but still has sort of its exponents in terms of learning has to do with rigorous drilling of simple positions, right? And there was a sort of formulaic approach to building chess masters where you would get sheet after sheet of chess positions and chess puzzles mm. be made to do them on a rigorous basis. And then obviously all of these things that really almost can't exist anymore, which are the intense machinations of the state yes. behind them, right? Where certain players would get more support and be uh, better trained and promulgated because of their adherence to the party. I mean, it was a whole thing. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. Had you, because this is mentioned here, and if you haven't, that's fine. Have you heard of this character, this person, Gabriel Vincente Maura? I have not heard of him, actually. That was a piece of history that even I was not sure about, but I'm sure it's accurate, given yeah. how much this, this script does seem to want to do its homework. So that's something that where I was like, okay, this is Latin history for morons. Like, mm. this is, like, his play, because, you know, Ligazamo is all about, like, yes, you know, and it's true. We know it's true for, uh, you know, black Americans, too, that, like, they've been erased from the pages of history. Literally, you know, as a Massachusetts man, the first person to lose their life in the American Revolution was a black man. You know? Absolutely. Like, and this is something that, you know... Was it Crispus Attucks? Yes. In the correct. Boston Massacre? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Continue. <Damn>. Yeah. <laughs> it's true with Latin, you know, Latin people, too. This is a country where, <laughs> what, at least a third was a Latin country at one point? Absolutely. You know, Latin American people have been living here as long as any people here, yet they're still treated in much of this country like immigrants, even if their, their family has been here for the 15 or 1600s. Yes. Uh, this is a real thing. This is a thing that I didn't learn in history books. You didn't learn in history books. No. I can guarantee that unless you went to some progressive school. Which that... I certainly did not. <laughs> That's like his pet project on Leozamo. That's like if, if he's going to have a legacy, it's almost that. Right. You know, reinserting this into curriculum. It's important to him. And that's great. It's important to me, too. I would almost guarantee that wasn't in the original script. 
that's mm. something he put in. Yeah. Because maybe it's something in his research. Because if you watch Latin history for morons, like the extensive research done there is just extraordinary. And yes, honestly, it's simplified, but you get why it's simplified. It's right. literally called Latin history for morons. You yes. Know? He's not trying to teach a high level college course. Uh, but yeah, so I looked the guy up and he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page, but like apparently there's like a modern game of chess that he invented credit and a lot of people play as a variation to chess and like oh. he just never got the credit. Oh, so there's a lot of, I read it because there's a lot of Spanish, um, language biographies about him, but not much in English. Modern chess. It's a uh, nine, nine by nine. nine by nine board. I know nothing about this. Yeah. I don't know, but oh yeah. The, so there's a Wikipedia article on modern chess, but he's not clickable. Yeah, I guess he, uh, oh, okay, excuse me. I'm thinking of this guy as being, like, from the 1400s. No, no, this is like a dude. Yeah, 1968. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know what's funny is that actually I would say that the other reference that I would think would make more sense given this sort of ancient chess references that Legozama's making during that speech would be, okay, so Marcel and um, this guy, apparently, by the way, this is a real person. Which is not always the case in these chess films that sometimes they make up a name to form as the uh, to form the antagonist mm-hmm. because who wants to be known as the kid <laughs> that you're casting as sort of the jerk? But this guy Akopian gets a special thanks in the oh uh, really yeah at the end of the movie in the credits. So he must I, have been like yeah use me whatever. I have to assume that he's a real player. But they play a line of the Rui Lopez. And the Rui Lopez is older than dirt as far as openings go, and it gets its name from a. I believe 15th century, but it may be 16th century, 1500s that I'm thinking of, but Spanish monk who wrote a book on the subject of this opening. And his name was Rui Lopez. Makes sense. Makes sense. Right. So that to me is sort of an interesting thing where Latin culture figures very prominently into the game, right? The Rui Lopez is one of the most famous openings there is. Definitely. We're learning a lot of chess lessons here. I'm doing what I can. Not moves, but... <laughs> in fact, it's actually, I should say, the Rui Lopez is also known in some places as simply the Spanish game. Makes sense, makes sense. Absolutely. So this is the one I've been holding out on. I don't even know if I can pronounce it. It starts with a Z. Why don't you say it, John? Um, I'm going to try and use my two semesters of German, and I will say that it's Zugzwang. Zugzwang. Okay. Yeah, with a TZ at the beginning, as, as befits the Z in German. But but Zugzwang, right, is totally fine in the States, right? Zugzwang, Zugzwang, whatever you want to say. Um, Zweischtug, if you want to be my elementary schoolers, <laughs> who definitely mispronounce it to antagonize me. So the Zweischtug, what a... In a quick, quick way, what is that? They actually, I think, do an excellent job of defining this. And I also am happy you brought it up because it's the, one of the only positions that I saw in the entire movie that was really fascinating. Because you see it long enough to understand what's going on. And it is actually quite interesting. So Zugzwang is quite simply a situation that can only happen in a game like chess, wherein you are compelled to move. So unlike other games where you might be able to pass turn, Mm -hmm. or sometimes even that's a critical part of the game, in chess you are never allowed to pass turn. You must move or resign. There's simply no other way to resolve the situation. So this creates situations as happen in the game, and you know at some point perhaps we'll be able to demonstrate this, but where Ito absolutely has to move, and yet every move that he could possibly make loses. Wow. That's what Zugzwang is, where you cannot help but cut your own throat. 
feels very much like life sometimes. Honestly. Yes, unfortunately, <laughs> right? Yeah, and it's rich with metaphor, and there's a reason they put it into the movie. Sometimes every move's the wrong one. That's crazy. There's a lot of chess's life in this, but yes. it is what it is. It's definitely used as a lesson. Chess and... has always been incredibly rich with metaphor. Um, there's a book that I really love by a guy named Jonathan Rousen called The Moves That Matter, and he's a, a Scottish grandmaster who... His chess books are unlike most chess books in that they're incredibly prose heavy. They are not filled with diagrams huh. and lists of moves. That's he mostly writes about chess from a cultural standpoint these days. And uh, The Moves That Matter is his least dense, right, most prose heavy book that's just about a life playing professional chess. And it's really interesting. And that's one of the things that he talks about is just how much chess is so rich with imagery and metaphor that people inevitably adopt it into everything. Sometimes people who don't even play. Yeah, no, I mean, definitely. People don't have 100% like chess education. It's definitely a sport or, you know, game, whatever you want to say, that everyone knows, you know, it's not like bridge. I don't know what the fuck happens in bridge. You know, I've heard of bridge, but I couldn't, I don't know what bridge fucking is, you know? Right. Sorry to say that. But it apparently makes you curse. <laughs> it gets me very angry. Yeah, I get so upset. <laughs> Somebody tell me what bridge is. But chess, I think people have, maybe not everyone knows what every piece does, but people knows what every piece looks like pretty much the, the black the true. white and so it is a very like relatable thing that surprisingly people don't know ha have well they don't have your level of knowledge of it but... no they don't have my level of problem <laughs> fair, fair um there is one more term that you haven't asked me about oh. but i have to make sure we get in what's that which is i mentioned it at the top which is screwing it in oh so, screwing it in yes it was in my notes to ask so you. screwing it in is 100 percent a chess culture thing that uh i don't even know how widespread it is but certainly everyone that I've ever taught it to has immediately adopted its policy. Screwing it in is when you play an especially good move. And you do not do this in gentlemanly tournament chess. <laughs> right? This is strictly a blitz chess, local pool hall hustle kind of thing. Right? This is only for certain situations. But you take the piece and rather than simply place it on the square... You, I'm demonstrating this to Brian, screw it into oh, so the square. Okay, okay. Yeah, exactly. Just to let them know that this move is the one that kills them. And no one has ever experienced screwing it in without immediately saying, oh, that's the only way to play. Is there a screw it in button when you play online chess? There is unfortunately not, but I'm told that top people are working on the design. <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's what I, I think people think that chess is like a game played in like fancy tea rooms and like dainty people saying like, you know, oh, haha, -ha, here. But just I love like in the movie, you see some of the nastiness of chess, too. I think that another great movie, Searching for Bobby Fischer, actually does more than this film to reflect that greater chess culture, gotcha. right? That gets out of the tournament hall and shows, I mean, Lawrence Fishburne's character in that movie, you see a lot more of Washington Square Park hustle style chess. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. And I do think that that's a really important part of the game that's very interesting. And that's fine that this movie wasn't wide enough to encompass that. It's already two hours. I think the length was good, right? But it's just, if people are interested in exploring that in a different way, uh, I highly recommend searching for Bobby Fischer. It's another great movie about well, we'll save that when we get to our recommendations at the end. Absolutely. So, unless you want to pick different things. Like, I want to watch Pretty in Pink. <laughs> um, okay, so let's just talk some quick scenes. We don't have to get too into it. Sure. I did like the escalation. So so just to set the scene, you know, um, Martinez, he's called Mr. T for some reason. I guess the 
Martinez part of it. I don't know. But Mr. Martinez, he has this class and the principal kind of treats it like it's detention. She sends bad kids there and he really tries to come through to the kids. Um, And again, I know some fictional teachers in the past who've been critical of them. We always do like teacher movies. I don't know why. Well, I am a teacher. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess it makes sense. But this guy, it was based on a real guy. And for me, it was more palatable than... Let's say an English teacher like uh, Dead Poets Society, which again, we both like. I'm not criticizing that. Because it is chess and it is an elective. And I think you could, I don't know. There's still an element of like there's a game being played here. Not like, oh, I really want you to get into Longfellow or something like that. Right? Like, you know what I'm saying? So like, yeah. It's, yeah. The, the one thing I would say about the chess classes that I thought they could have incorporated without completely abandoning the need to simplify and, and get on with things that it makes complete sense there's an awful lot of sitting and doing chess puzzles that's incredibly important to any chess class. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And especially as the class got more serious, that's an incredibly important thing that, that was not reflected. I loved, you know, the demonstration board that he uses is absolutely what I used for many years before smart boards and mm-hmm. the ability to just plug your laptop in became very common. There's so much in the outlook, um, the layout is what I was trying to say, gotcha. not outlook, of that class that's very real. Yeah, and I appreciated that. And, you know, I see him sort of working to get them more enthused about it. And I thought that was fun, too. I liked seeing that there were certain kids who were into it. There were certain kids who were good, but maybe not as into it. And he had to motivate. And there were just kids in the back of the class who were just there because it's a game. Absolutely. And I think that was more realistic. I wouldn't have liked to see, like, a class of 20 people who were like, what's the next move? This is great. Ha ha. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was cool to see that variation of it um and i think if you're gonna have a weird criticism like the whole team as guys but it's a true story yeah so I, it bothered me a little too though that none of the girls seem to ever show any real chess competence i think ligazama recognized this because you see them play in the tournaments a lot of girls they do a lot more than i expected so he's like this is a true story i'm not gonna just change a character to be a girl when it's not because like that would be unfair yeah so just to address that if anyone like has heard that criticism or, or i get it like you said you felt the same way it was a little weird to see but again one true story two they're almost ex- not almost exclusively but i would say at least more than 50 percent of those like final games they're playing against uh women or girls however yeah. you want to say this so i've never run women. a high school program right mm-hmm. i mean i was i participated in one and then i've run an elementary school program for about seven years right this is the first year that i won't be doing it because of course at least as far as my employer contacting me is concerned there's no after school chess happening this wow. year Um, Which is, yeah, it's really insane, honestly. But on the other hand, it's a lot better than what people who preach, and I say, I use that word on purpose, right, who preach football are going through. I mean, they can't even, I don't even know that that'll be played at all. Although I'm not really sure what's going on with scholastic athletics. But anyway, at least chess can move online. That's my point. That's true. But um, I will say that we absolutely have... At the elementary school level, we absolutely still have a decent amount of girl participants who unfortunately do start to fade away a bit as you go into middle school and gotcha. then more so in high school. And we absolutely have a strong mix of very good chess players, serious kids who take private lessons, semi-serious kids who are really starting to get into it, and kids who are there because their parents need them to be in an after-school program before they can pick them up. And this was the one that was open. And those are the kids that I always had the hardest time with, of course, 
because they didn't want to do the activity, but they also didn't want to do something productive. They wanted to disrupt the class and distract the other students. Yeah, yeah, I can so, imagine that. It's tough, you know, it's a hard job. And uh, it's funny, I had thoughts at some times of, you know, writing some kind of script to reflect those experiences because <laughs> they are so specific and interesting. But uh, this film has more of a focus, I think, than than that one would because you can orient it around always not just these kids' very specific life experiences and how different they are, which is compelling and not so much a told story, but also you have the natural focus narratively of the national championship, right? Yeah. That's where we're all heading. And, and we, you know, we progress there. There's at uh, first the four... Uh, kids it's not clear like who's going to be in the tournament until we kind of see the tournament we know that these are our characters but i wasn't sure if they had 10 kids or, or just focusing on those four but the first round i guess is like regionals and they need the money and the school doesn't have it so they <laughs> they suggest selling chocolates right mm-hmm. and the kids just improvise and make... They sell edibles. <laughs> yes, they sell edibles. In 1996, mind you, so... Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. Mean, you know, I didn't expect this movie to go there. Sure. But it's not like they're like, oh, you know, great job or anything like that either. They get in trouble for it, as they would even today, even though we're more relaxed. You probably can't have school-sponsored, you know, drug sales. No matter Seems what like it's probably at least frowned upon. <laughs> yes, at the very yeah. least. Yeah. Frowned upon. Um, <laughs> Um, that's when uh, Mr. Martinez just basically is like, oh, I saved up, you know, for a rainy day. I'll just fund this one. But And then we see, like, the first tournament. And that's pretty cool because that's the one where they show up in those uh, blue polos from the mm-hmm. school. And that's the one where the dude is, like, really... Like, really a snot. Yeah. yeah really. <laughs> Almost unrealistically so. But who knows, right? Maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, sometimes we are appalled by racism in movies and classism, which it's probably a mix of both in this mm-hmm. case. Right. Sometimes we're appalled by these things in movies only to realize that the scriptwriter says, no, that literally happened to me. <laughs> it wouldn't shock me if that kind of thing happened. Again, especially like 96 chess, you know, yep, they true. were a uniquely different team. They said that the Dade County team where Miami is located, like had never advanced that far. So just seeing a team like that from the inner cities, it wouldn't right. shock me if he's like, what are you doing here? You know, it's true. It's true. For they were going to be rowdy kids, you know, maybe they. Right. Maybe in real life they walked in, they were loud, and because they, you know, they're a loud bunch, but that doesn't mean they're bad people. No, you know? but it certainly did seem, based on the performances, mm-hmm. right, that yeah, it's probably a rowdy bunch of kids that were on this team. Yeah, and the guy, like, he doesn't probably even realize he's being racist at the time. He's just like, they're not our people, kind of thing. Yeah, you know? it's true. Tremendous, by the way, completely off this particular topic. A tremendous amount of blue in this movie. Blue is like a very heavily yeah, featured yeah. color, right? Like Ced- Cedric's apartment is all very like blue rich hues, blue. Yeah. The uniforms are blue. There were a couple of different places that it seemed to feature prominently that yeah. I just noticed. That Director's color. a Mets fan. Mm. I, guess. No, I don't know why. But no, you're right. You're right. That was definitely the palette. Oh, one other thing. So, Marcel, he earns this nickname, Marcel Duchamp. Mm-hmm. Marcel Duchamp was, many people may already be aware, but a very famous French artist. Okay, in the 20th century. Yes. Who he abruptly... He did this not a pipe, right? And the urinal thing. Yes. So he also abruptly became completely obsessively fascinated with chess and actually temporarily retired his artistic career, took up chess full time, and learned and advanced so much that he became a member of the French national team wow. for a short period. <laughs> yes. That's amazing. So the nickname... Of Marcel with Marcel Duchamp is entirely warranted. Oh, okay. I thought it was just like, oh, that's fun because of the artist. Like if you have a Leonardo, like, oh, we'll call him Da Vinci or something, you know. No, very strong chess oh, player, cool. Marcel Duchamp, in the end. 
And so let's get to Marcel because he kind of changes the dynamic of this film here. We mentioned already the stuff that's going on in the background in terms of uh, that kid who just shot. But uh, Ito is kind of struggling because he has a full-time job. Uh, you know, Dominican kid, he, he's had a rough home life. He, uh, I think he just lives with his mom and he, he has to earn a living. So doing this chess thing is kind of, you know, putting him in a bad position with his, jo- his job. He ends up getting fired at a, a point in the movie. After they win, and Ito is a big part of it, but after they win the... States. Regional. Regional first. Ah, yes. Then they go to states. Regionals is how he loses his job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Regionals how he loses his job. But And after that, they're kind of... Uh, they need money to go to states. Right. So at some point, there's a car wash for all this kind of stuff. But... They start hustling, chess hustling, which is something you've already talked about here. Yes. It happens, it's real, and when they do it at a park in like the Cuban section of town, uh, basically they kind of uh, hustled themselves mm-hmm. uh, by... Sad but true. <laughs> by the best kid in that part of town who ends up going to their school. I wonder how true this part is, I'm not like sure, because it does seem interesting that he suddenly started going to their school. Very narratively convenient. Yes. yes. However... Uh, I think it was cool because he he's a kid like straight from Cuba at the time. He hardly speaks English. We, we, I, we brought up the Soviet school because that's what Marcel like learned. Apparently he was drilled the same way in Cuba, mm-hmm. obviously a Soviet satellite nation. Absolutely. So, And there are a number of very strong chess players who come out of Cuba. And one of them is mentioned, although he's referred to as Raul Capablanca, which is a little bit strange. His full name is Jose Raul Capablanca, and I don't know that he only went by Raul. I've <laughs> never heard that before. Interesting. Um, J.R. Capablanca is how he often signed things. Um, and he was actually champion of the world. Oh, so wow. a rather good player. <laughs> um, um, I'd say. But I wouldn't say that he's entirely unknown either. I mean, he's, okay. he's talked about, for example, he is the favorite chess player of one of the characters in Twin Peaks. Oh, really? Uh, always mentioning Jose Raul Capablanca. <laughs> oh, okay. Chess is a big part of that TV show. Yes. No, so, like, it's not illogical that this, you know, Miami, a city with a number of Cuban-Americans, or just Cubans in general, this kid would come out of there, and since it's based on a true story, he was, like, the heart and soul of the team. This team probably would have made it to the next one. Well, they did without him, but this team becomes a national title contender with this guy on the team. Yes. You have to think about it always as the trickle-down effect, that him playing board one and winning those points for them makes such a difference. Although this probably wasn't actually, now I think about it, it probably wasn't played with a board so much uh, system, but rather each player earns individual points in his section, which all go towards the team. But still, one amazing performance out of a player that's that strong tips the balance. It's like having, yeah, like Michael Jordan on your team or something. And his 40 points. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, exactly. So he's going to add to anything. And uh, I loved when they were like kind of testing his acumen where he was blindfolded and they had like the, like five or six boards and he's like doing that, you know, like drilling them like, this uh, I don't know. You know the board pieces more than I do. Yeah, you know what I mean. absolutely. Yeah, he's, they're answer, they're giving their moves in English, and he's answering them in Spanish. Yeah, those are really excellent. Actually, I would love to run a blindfold exhibition at some point. I'm sort of working up to it That's myself. Super cool. Yeah. But yeah, just being able to play one complete game is sort of already challenge enough for me. <laughs> the idea of playing four or five. I mean, there are people who can play thirty two. That's crazy. It is. It's insane, <laughs> and they win most of them. Right? Anyone can. Even no, that's not even true. Not anyone. 
even the feat of memory alone to hold the games in your head and to play them properly is impressive. It's insane. Just but to say, do yeah. it and win most of them is sort of another <laughs> level entirely. Unbelievable. And, you know, the team, again, goes to a different level here. The hustling fails, so that's why they do the car wash. Yes, and... he, traps, he traps Rodelay, by the way, in something which is known as a fishing pole attack. For a fish. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sort of. Yeah, exactly. It has to do with basically offering what looks like a whole piece to someone, but in actuality opens up a mating attack in short order. And that's why you see the excitement suddenly die down as Cedric realizes before Rodelay, yes. oh my god, he's just getting mated. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fun. Like that even if you don't know chess, it's fun to see their reactions like oh fuck. Yeah. I did appreciate and I appreciate I feel like they do it more and more in Hollywood movies. That the chess is accurate. That a lot of the positions, they, they take pains to make it a real chess gotcha. position. Oversimplified, but accurate. It's not just exactly. like... Exactly. Like exactly. It's things that I wouldn't expect these players of these strengths to fall for. But they're real traps, and they do work. Gotcha, gotcha. And the movie's honestly more fun with traps like that. It's more... For, for me, so who doesn't... I'm like, oh, oh snap moments, you know. Um, <laughs> so they end up winning regionals as well. And I love, like, the... The prizes that like he offers, like, oh, I'm going to take you to Red Lobster or things like that. or It's cool because I'm sure the rich kids are getting something much fancier and much better. Or pizza on the one scene when they're, when they're uh, at that like motel or whatever. Just swimming in a pool to them. It's just so different than the chaos of their lifestyle. Absolutely. Like, it's super cool. And also, when you're a kid, someone brings pizzas. That's awesome. You know? <laughs> I'm with you. I mean, I'm still into it. <laughs> Uh, I guess the big turning point chess-wise in the film is when uh, Ito basically has to quit the team. He does go to regionals with them, which is awesome. And that's uh, it's a big deal for him, but he has to quit the team just to do... We'll say take care of some business. I want to say do a job, but he's been fired and he's kind of switched to drug dealing. Mm-hmm. Um, the cops are after him. And after a talk with Mr. Martinez, he's basically like, yeah, you got to do the right thing here and... If the cops are after you and they want you to snitch, you, you kind of have to do it. Because if you don't, you know, your whole life is screwed. And that's yeah. when he... There's a lot of chess metaphors here that he directly gives him. Absolutely. But it is an important moment in the film, for sure. For a lot of reasons. One, because Ito's no longer with the chess team, and it's important. And uh, two, just in his life, you know? this is It's so much more real than winning a chess tournament at that point. Yes. Um, what do you think of the... I know we touched on it a little bit, and I know, like, there... I could see some criticisms here and maybe like sticking away from it. But I think you made a good point that kind of turned me. Without this, it is just a sports film. Well, yeah, I just think maybe that gives a sense of the real danger that these kids are going through. I mean, I'm quite sure that in Miami, especially around some of these kids' lives, there is a lot of violence and there is a lot of real danger Mm -hmm. that they sort of accept as par for the course because that's what they live through every day. But um, to lose sight of that in, in telling the story probably is missing something, even if it is the kind of thing that appeals to Hollywood. Yeah, right? yeah, for sure. And, like, you know, it sets it well when they end up going to the Nationals in L.A. I think there's, oh, yeah, there's, like, some corporate sponsor that they don't mention, like, sponsored their airline tickets. I think it was the airline or whatever. Uh, you know, the first time some of them are on the plane. And what is that when they're in the varsity jackets and the ties? I forgot, because their uniforms keep changing a little bit. Yeah, yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I remember. <laughs> uh, They're definitely wearing very nice jackets when they go to nationals. Yeah, one of the aspects throughout this is that you can't 
And I guess it makes sense, and this is probably accurate. Like, you can't coach during a game. Obviously, you can't yell out moves, but you can't even, like, you know. I, I get why they do that, because even if you're encouraging someone, you, it could be a signal for something. Some of the things that, that even Legazama's doing, even in the movie, would be possible grounds for disqualification and expulsion from the tournament. I mean, it's it's that serious. Wow. You have to think about the fact that um, when they do the World Championship now, so they're attempting to try and make it a spectator event. I know when they came to South Street Seaport... Um, a number of years ago to play Magnus Carlsen was playing the world championship here. This was 20, man, 2015, 2016. It doesn't matter. But my point is both players were behind a thick wall of glass so that, and of course everyone was very quiet anyway, but you, they can't take the risk because nowadays the problem is at some point there was a certain amount of protection that the players who were playing were so much better than you that the idea mm. that you were going to shout something out to the world champion wasn't such a big deal. But now, my cell phone can play as well as the best guy in the world. It's crazy. So the ability it. to cheat has just exploded. And you probably have a, a Houston Astros situation. It's a really serious problem in the chess world, absolutely. And people are caught cheating or suspected of cheating, which, let's be honest, is worse, right? All yeah. the time. because And I say worse because it destroys the culture of the game. Yeah, right. When good you, point. You no longer know. I mean, this is especially true right now as we're all playing online that uh, there's been a lot of move towards having people have to be on a Zoom call in order to participate in tournaments, wow. and sometimes with even multiple cameras. Because especially at the scholastic level, where the kids... God bless them, I do love kids, but they are young, they don't fully understand the consequences. And if there's a scholarship in line? Exactly. There is that's a, hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line. There's a tremendous amount of cheating. A tremendous amount. Oh, and the sucks. national... I think the recent... Is it the national championship? My friend Andrew is is even deeper in the chess scene than I am, and he was telling me that there was a case recently in a major tournament, and I'll, I won't even bother to get the specifics because I don't want to be misquoted. Um, or, I sorry, excuse me, I don't want to misquote. <laughs> but uh, they tried to give it to the first-place person who then was accused of cheating, and they weren't able to give it to the second-place person oh because God. he was then later accused of cheating. Jesus. You know, credibly accused of cheating, <laughs> I should say, right? So it's, yeah, it's an incredibly big problem now because of computers. Um, and it's really unfortunate. Wow. Yeah. So I just wanted to ask about that. Mm -hmm. um, so what do you think overall of just the, you know, it's very sportsy, but final chess moments and, you know, they need almost a point to win. It's very and like runaway that. jury. That, that, like, there's something about, like, two lawyers going in, you know, to the bathroom that was very strange. <laughs> I almost wonder if that's actually what happened. Because uh, I don't know about the bathroom confrontation. That struck me as incredibly Hollywood. But specifically the idea that they tried to take a break and didn't stop the clock properly. There's something about that that seemed awfully specific to the point where I said either this is bad writing or exactly what actually happened. I, I had the same thought and I kind of think that it has to be true, right? Because like, if, especially if, look, this is a movie for the mainstream. It's not a movie for chess people. Right. So why would they do something like this? Well, it was fun to see both of their clocks actively on the screen. It's sort of like an interesting idea. Yeah, because they only started that kind of stuff like later in the film. You know, mm -hmm. it wasn't the full time like Miami, you know. <laughs> you really see the age of this movie too, by the way, in the prevalence of analog clocks, right? The old timey yeah, yeah. little buttons with proper clocks running because now everything's digital. You can only imagine. Yeah, there's there's just so much harder to maintain an analog clock, of right? Uh, in the scene specifically you're talking about, this is when he goes against. You said his name before. Uh, yeah, he has the same. It might be Hector Akobian. Akobian, yeah, whatever his name was. Akobian. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember. And but Vladimir Akobian is an Armenian chess grandmaster, which I always. Uh, but that's not the same guy. This is 
This is someone else. Um, gotcha. Well, he... Um, well, just to sum it up, they, they all play good games. One of the things we really didn't talk about, we touched on it lightly, was that like a couple of the players, specifically Cedric, doesn't like to draw do draws. Yeah, doesn't like to take a draw. Yeah, he doesn't like that. I guess, yes, take a I draw. I share sorry. his distaste for draws. <laughs> the only draws I prefer by force. But like, for example, if it's uh, only a king and a king in the end game, right? There's no, there's no taking a draw. The game is over. Yeah. Right. But but the draws that are agreements, I do not like them. I rarely take them. You have to get it though when you're playing team chess, though, because if you can take the one point, it matters, especially the way they're playing. Right. So a draw gives you a half a point, and the or, win yeah, gives sorry, you the sorry. full. So exactly, yeah. that half a point can be critical. Yeah, better than losing, right? Absolutely. Like, so especially. If you're being strategic, because they said the one thing that could, they could tell their teammates is whether they need a draw or not, theoretically, yes. in this world. Right. Um, so he starts taking draws and stuff. They're all playing well. And basically to win now, in this tournament, whatever, they always have the two top-ranked players play each other, even if they're not playing team chess. So in order to win, Marcel, not just for the team, but the individual championship, Marcel needs to beat this dude you just mentioned. Um, so you mentioned like there's that scene where they go to the bathroom and it's like let's just do a draw and then it, 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 whatever we'll both get scholarships there's the uh, oh but the clock moment the fact that he lets the clock run out and then does the piece or not run out but get to that level right that told me that has to be a real story right like is that's how it struck me yeah it, it seemed very strange and and how quickly this this guy who seems so intimidating and uh, you know uh, full of himself in the bathroom suddenly is uh you know completely flummoxed as he realizes that he's screwed it up (laughs) you know i have another interesting thing here i think that the book that cedric is reading is secrets of modern chess strategy which is a book by uh john watson certainly i saw john watson prominently on the cover of that book that he reads and then he finds his father reading and that book was not published until 1999 Ooh. so an interesting little uh, anachronism exactly anachronism yeah uh-uh. <laughs> just something that's sort of an interesting you know strange detail in the film well we get a win at the end they win another trophy for their school it feels good i don't know about you but i felt good when this happened it felt like yay you know then that's really the point of this movie to feel good and feel good for those kids yeah it, it was awesome and we kind of have this little thing at the end where we see like the real people and they talk for a little bit and, you know, as the credits roll, too, there's a little bit of that as well. Yeah, which I very much enjoyed. I liked that. It, like, that was a nice scene because it just reminded me, like, yes, this is Hollywood, but these are real people. They're still friends, which is awesome. Mm. You know? Uh, yeah, and they really connected with this teacher. And it looked like a lot of them are teachers now or teaching chess. Or at least that's what it seemed like. Yeah, so. yeah, it was a nice happy ending and a nice way to, to see things. I mean, of course, after hearing... Their stories and watching them for so long, you do you have this urge to meet the real people and right. see how they are now and that sort of thing. So that was satisfying. They do a similar thing, I think, in Queen of Cuts Way, which is another great chess movie. I've never seen that one. Yeah, that's uh, that's very good. And uh, of course, as she is in everything, uh, Lupita Nyong'o is outstanding. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, that movie. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. I, I've been wanting to see that one. Yeah, that's very good. So, I yeah, you know, happy ending here and. Honestly, it's 2020. Sometimes I'm not ready for it. We are jaded people these days, and we should be. You know, this has been a tough year. It was nice to see a happy ending. I'll put it that way. I agree. It was nice to see this. Um, Anything else you want to talk about when it comes to the film? Or should we move on to our questions and maybe, you know, a little promotion? 
No, I think, yeah, I think just a good movie. I was glad I watched it. It's always fun to look at new chess positions and, you know, mostly to see recognition of things I already knew. But as I said, the Zugzwang position in particular was kind of fascinating to me because I had to set it up on a board to realize that it was completely legitimate to the narrative. <laughs> that they had, you know, found a, a, a cool puzzle, essentially, to put on the board to reflect their, the story they wanted to tell. And, um, yeah, glad I watched it. Worth watching. All right, so some of these questions don't really translate for 2020. They're more for, like, the 80s movie with it. But we're going to ask them anyway. So first, Wooderson Award. Is there a character here you would have liked to see more of, someone they maybe would have focused more on, or even a storyline? Hmm. Maybe Michael K. Williams, because Michael K. Williams. Yes, because he's so great. Yeah. Right? Like, he could have used another scene if, if it were going to be doing something that was dynamic and something not the same, right? We certainly didn't need another scene of the abusive father. No. Or I didn't want a scene, too, where like he shows up at the end and he's like, I love you now, son. You know, like, like come on. Like, we get that in so many movies, too. No, that's true. But maybe somewhere in the middle. I don't know. There's a girlfriend character who we don't see a lot. Um, good performance, too. I thought she was really good. Yeah. You know, I was thinking her, too, as well. But, you know, you can't you can't beat uh, Michael K. Williams. I mean, like, he's just so good. <laughs> okay. Long Duck Dong Award. I don't know if it's applicable here because we're talking about 2020. But is there a character whose omission would make the film better? Whether, you know, is there any, well, there's no one who's dated it's 2020, but maybe you felt like someone was like, oh, that was too much of a stereotype or, oh, because honestly, it's almost the principle reversely. It is is almost the principle. It's almost the young black girl that the young Cuban new kid runs into. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is a little bit strange, but yeah, maybe the principle a little bit, but at least they find a way to sort of demonstrate that this person is not just pure evil. Yeah, um, I think I she's think she's perhaps was, just tired. <laughs> you know, I think that's saved. Really, I don't think there's a real obvious choice in this movie. Mm-hmm. Okay, Cameron Fry, where did anyone look too old to be a high schooler? Here was anyone like, okay, that person's out of place, or like they didn't fit in with the rest of the cast. Mm, you know, I think it was mostly just the surroundings in which we met him more than anything. But maybe Marcel. Right? I can see I, that. I think by the end, by the time, you know, wearing the jacket and sort of dressing like a high schooler more and seeing it, right, I, I sort of felt more like, yeah, you know, he uh, he fits in. I thought he was fine. So not a lot of data on critical thinking right now. Obviously, it's a new film and this is a different era. So you basically have to kind of seek this film out, mm-hmm. rent it and watch it. You know, mm-hmm. if this was in the theaters and it was supposed to pr- premiere at South by Southwest, supposed to get that whole treatment, it didn't. So... Less eyeballs on it. Yeah. So only 29 critics have rated this so far on Rotten Tomatoes, but they've given it a 93%, which is, you know, very high. Yeah. Um, now, the audience score has been a little bit less. Right now, Rotten Tomatoes, that's 80. I've seen kind of like some other sites with like 75s to 85. That's usually the range. Uh, but of course, this is High School Slumber Party. We rate things on an A plus to F scale because you're a teacher, John, you know we got to do the old-fashioned American grading system. Absolutely. <laughs> so what letter grade will you give critical thinking? I feel like with my criticisms that I've already laid out, I can't give it an A. Because a lot of, I will say, even the ham-fistedness starts to go away as the movie goes on. It really does, yeah. Um, it's, it's just sort of some early clunkiness and exposition and a little bit of lack of narrative resolution. Maybe maybe I'd give it an A minus, but probably more like a B plus. So that was my grade as well, actually B plus. You you kind of were selling me more on it than I thought, so I might bump to an A minus because yeah. <laughs> you Happy know I have so much influence on you. 
Because you gave the B plus, I'm gonna give the A minus. If you gave the I minus, I would have given the B plus. There we go. I'll be bad copy. You'll be good copy. <laughs> we learned from watching the detectives. <laughs> yes. <laughs> whom, about whom we didn't talk. No, but that's eh. okay. We don't need to. <laughs> Let, you know what, guys? You want it? Let's do another half hour on these detectives. <laughs> no. <laughs> Tell you what. Speak up if you want us to talk more about them. <laughs> yes. Well, there you have it. <laughs> Uh, but honestly, I'm really proud and happy for John Leguizamo to get to do a project like this. I know it's really important to him. I know this film is really important to him. He's a guy, like, you know, like a lot of celebrities have other people run their social media when it comes to promotion of movies. Right. He's a guy you could tell, like, I follow him on all social media platforms and he's like been promoting this film. He's telling you he's putting his heart and soul in it and he's so happy about it and, and excited for it. I'm sure he would have loved if it got a real theater run and yeah. in a different time. But what a lousy year. Yes. <laughs> for more reasons than this movie, but still. Just, no, just this. <laughs> yeah, right. This is the only problem. Yeah, no, exactly. So, uh, you know, I'm really happy for him. There's probably a lot of that has to do with my A- grade here because... I, I love him. I'm a fanboy of him. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. You have his home address. I get it. <laughs> really like the guy. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> All right. So next question. Sleeping bag, John. You and I were having this slumber party, this critical thinking chess slumber party. What does your sleeping bag look like? Um, what does my sleeping bag look like? You, know, you can make it look like anything you want. Uh, I mean, why? I've, I assume that it's checkered with black and white squares. Is that the chessboard you prefer? Do you prefer like... You ever look in Sky Mall and they have like these hulking like gargoyle chess pieces or you the know, Yankees. I'm you so know? happy you gave me an opportunity to talk about this. <laughs> I I don't think I'm alone in this among chess players, but I think I think that the the thing about chess this is this goes back to what we were talking about how it's rich in metaphor, rich in you know opportunities for. <laughs> I'm laughing because like visually you guys can't see, but you're like leaning back, you have a headband on. You're like, the thing about chess, yeah, it's, it's like an yeah, athletic yeah. lecture. Well, I am gonna hold forth about it. Thank you very much. But continue. No, but continue. my because my relationship with chess is practical and functional. I have a very different relationship to what kind of boards I like. I like the simple sets. I want a set that is generally the Staunton design and. For those of you that don't know what that means, it's the chess design that you see on the vast majority of chess sets, mm-hmm. right, that are out there, especially the plastic ones, plastic pieces and rubber boards, you know, or vinyl boards that you see in this movie yeah. and throughout scholastic tournaments in the, around the country and the world, right? Because they're cheap and you can move them and lose them and break them without, you know, vast cost, right? It's much less... Uh, the idea of having all wooden pieces and wooden boards at a tournament, it's just too expensive to be sustainable, especially with kids. Of course. Um, but, but yeah, so for me, any kind of like weird art deco chess set or like even I love the Simpsons, but even like Simpsons characters or things like this, they just get in the way, right? It's just it's design that completely gets in the way of what's going on, which is that I want to play chess, not look at some strange artist rendition. So that being said, Still a functional chess set that is my least favorite has to be the glass chess pieces. Oh, okay. They are absolutely intolerable (laughs) because the noise that they make of glass tapping on glass. Now imagine doing that for an hour or playing (laughs) Blitz with it even worse, right? Just completely like I'd rather not play than play on a glass on glass set. Good to know. Good to know. I mean, I think you're disappointing a lot of people who were thinking of gift ideas for you in the future. Like it just... A very yeah. like a gothic chess set. No, you know, you see you those wanna, like the long pieces. You know? If you want to get me a nice chess set, get me one on a wooden board with hand carved wooden pieces. 
and I'll be very happy. <laughs> oh, and a really nice box to put everything in to keep it safe. The box is cool, right? Sure. I mean, you might have a maybe in your home one day a decorative chess set just because of your love of chess, but it's probably not going to be your functional playing chess set, I would imagine. I suppose, but I would never have a chess set that wasn't intended to be played. Okay, okay, good. I mean, good to know. Yeah. I, I love it. I'm learning so much here. <laughs> okay, John, so you and I... You've mentioned some picks, so I'm very curious here. But you and I are in the magical blockbuster that defies time, space, everything. And we're like, we're having our critical thinking slumber party. We're excited. We got our Twizzlers. We got we have our chess boards next to us, just holding them. And we get to that counter at the blockbuster, and we see the sign. And the sign says, rent two movies, get one free. And I say, John, let's do this. We're going to have a three-movie marathon. Go to the back. Get two other movies. Pick whatever you want. Let's do this. I'll wait by the counter. What two movies are you bringing up to the counter? Um, I would say that with this film, I'll go with the obvious choices. I would say Queen of Cutsway and definitely Searching for Bobby Fischer. Perfect. All chess evening. I like it. Sounds like a fun night. Um, now, John. Now, when you said fun night, did you spell it N-I-G-H-D <laughs> or K-N-I-G-H-D? I'll show myself up. <laughs> I wish I had more chess puns to counter you with. I'm uh... sure people... In my head, I'm like, pawn, 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 rook, 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 rook. <laughs> There's really nothing for Bishop. Uh, you could always say that you're looking forward to promoting the podcast um, <laughs> and that people will have to check it out. <laughs> very good, very good. Speaking of promoting and checking out and, I don't know, <laughs> castling your way through. It doesn't make any oof, sense. No. Oof, oof. <laughs> trying yeah that's all right trying i'm making an l-shaped move toward a different part of this conversation (laughs) all right all right but you've alluded to this before and you've talked about it you have your chess channel it's on twitch and youtube and yes we want to co-promote something and it's going to be really fun yes absolutely so uh i thought it would be a good idea in order to add a little bit of extra content to this discussion and let people share even more in my great love of chess that we would do a live stream on Thursday night on my chess channel, which can be found at twitch.tv slash acceptable chess. I'll spell that as one word. I will walk you through some of the interesting chess positions from the movie. Um, Now for chess heads, I guess we could talk about these things just by reciting the notation, but I think for sure that uh, most people would get a lot more out of being able to visually see what's going on. And uh, yeah, we'll be able to explore them in more detail and just sort of hopefully help you get more out of the film when you eventually see it or if you rewatch. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited for it. I'm invited. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be there. So this is going to be interesting for me. I've attended some of your online chess lectures, but I am, I am a fish. That's fair to say. I'm a wood pusher. There we go. <laughs> now you're speaking the lingo. Well, this was an absolute pleasure, John. I think Likewise. We, I think we teetered the line between diving into the minutiae, which I love, but also talking about this film and, uh, you know, other stuff, but mostly chess. And, that was, <laughs> and it was great. I, I love stuff like this. I think, uh, you know, the slumber is really appreciated. Always great having you on. One other thing I haven't mentioned but uh, s- since you've been on, but you're a married man now. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm very happy. Just want to congratulate you on air. And you, you've officially married, you're married to chess, right? <laughs> no, you're married to the lovely Katie. And one day we'll get her on this podcast, I'm sure. Well, it, now, it now seems harder than ever, but that's okay. It's true, as she is temporarily in England. 
we may have to do our best. But uh, but yes, uh, Katie, uh, Katie and I are very happy, and um, you know it's it's been a nice. Uh, I don't know. It's it's been a nice summer for us, uh, despite everything. To be getting married and and to be. Uh, sort of luxuriating in that accomplishment, I guess, for lack of a better way to describe it. Look, 2020 wasn't all bad. You got married to the love of your life, and shout out to Katie, I guess, you know. And once again, thank you, John, for coming on. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you for having me. Once again, love having John on, love having someone so passionate about chess and film and everything, and a very good friend. So just a reminder, you heard it right there. Thursday, I'll be joining John on his Twitch chess channel and you can find that at twitch.tv slash acceptable chess twitch.tv slash acceptable chess and that'll be at 7 p.m eastern standard time new york time if you're around the world so check that out it's going to be fun i mean again i'm a fish in chess but whatever it's going to be great hopefully some friends show up hopefully some slumberers show up but even if you don't at least I'll have fun with John and the chess of critical thinking. I guess that's what we're calling it. Well, it's not my job to call it things. You get it. It'll be chess stuff from critical thinking. So definitely check it out. I can't wait. And speaking of critical thinking, you know, as I listened to that episode back and I thought about the film, I really do enjoy this film. I definitely, definitely recommend checking it out. No, but in all seriousness, just thank you. Thank you, John Leguizamo, for making this happen, and and the great cast. Really awesome, and I don't know if you got from that podcast that I'm a big fan of John Leguizamo, but I am. I don't know how many times I could say it. My favorite Leguizamo quote ever, and it has to do with his Mets fandom. Um, I think he was, it's in one of his stories, like where he proposing to his wife, and whatever he said, something along the lines of, like, I'm a Mets fan. I've learned to love unconditionally and accept nothing in return. And oh my God, that is how I live my life because I'm a Mets fan. <laughs> anyway, if you know Mets fandom, you get it. If you don't, well, you probably live a happier life. Couple other notes before we get out of here. Of course, you do have homework. I'll get to that in a second. But today, probably, yeah, today is the last day that you can vote for what tattoo cousin pumpkin will get on his body from a goofy movie if you don't know what i'm talking about listen to our goofy movie episode but if you do vote on our social media will he get paulie shore's leaning tower of chisa guy tattooed to him forever or will he get max's power line vote and find out on friday's episode so if you're wondering what friday's episode is well guess what it's october we're starting our spooky halloween season and every halloween season we start off with my two good friends Dan Ferrara, and Autumn Ferrara, husband and wife, scary movie fans. And for this Halloween opener, we're talking The Monster Squad. You know who to call when you have ghosts. But who do you call when you have monsters? We're the Monster Squad. What's a squad? It's like Miami Vice, I think. They're young and inexperienced. They're a bit disorganized. Monsters are not real. We don't know that, sir. 2,000-year-old dead guys do not get up and walk away by themselves. But when strange things start happening in town... There's a monster in my closet. Whoa! Look at that big, scary monster! What's happening? Do I have a werewolf? Silver bullet? They're the only ones ready to do battle. Something's out there to kill him! 
people. And if it's monsters, nobody's gonna do a thing about it but us. I think I said it is October. It's not quite October yet. It's going to be October this week. That's why we're starting our Halloween thing on Friday. And yeah, I really can't wait. And for those of you wise asses out there, it was like, oh, Monster Squad, they're all little kids. They're not in high school. We determined that two members of the Monster Squad are in high school. So yeah, yeah, what? What are you going to do? We're talking Monster Squad with Dan and Autumn. It's going to be fun. I don't know. I think I want to plan something fun for Halloween. Last year, we had Kyle try all the monster cereals. Kyle, the foodie films man himself. Maybe we'll do something like that. Maybe we'll do something different. I got to think about it. I got a couple days to think on this. So give me some time, guys. Give me some time. Speaking of Kyle, the foodie films man himself, I will be on his show this week with an extra special guest. So check out Foodie Films. That's all I'm saying. And of course, you can check that out on cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. E. Remember, guys, class participation is a huge part of your grade. Talk to us. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, High School Slumber Party, or at High School Slumber Party at gmail.com. That's High School Slumber Party at gmail.com. What else? Oh, yeah. Whew. As we crawl into our sleeping bags with dreams of chess pieces in our head, eating those chessmen cookies, having a good time. Let's remember that life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop to look around once in a while, you could miss it. See you guys Thursday on John's Chess Twitch channel, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And let's leave you with the only song I know about chess, Murray Heads, One Night in Bangkok. Later, dudes.
You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.